Today's reading is from the book of Colossians. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's word. So the portion of scripture we all just listened to and read is what I call a difficult or a hard text. There's quite a few of them in scripture. You may come across them at times. Uh, Here's my definition of a difficult text. A set of verses that seemingly contradict other verses on similar subject matter in the Bible and or just in a surface reading, glancing over it, seems to be inconsistent what we know to be true about the character and nature of our God. Now, as a Christian, the Bible is going to be a big part of your life, right? It's your manual for life. It's where you find life. It's how we commune with God. So we're going to have to learn how to deal with difficult texts. Um, The first thing that I do when I read a difficult text is I realize that God inspired difficult texts, right? Second Timothy chapter three tells us all scripture, not scripture we like or parts of scripture, all of scripture is inspired for God. It's, it's there for a reason. It's for doctrine, reproof, correction. There's something in every verse that deals with my fallen nature where God's trying to put me back on course. So when I come to a difficult text, I realize, well, God put this in the Bible for a reason. And you guys have heard me preach enough to know that I love the Bible. It is an amazing book. It's a miraculous book. God had to move human beings to write his holy word. And uh, we've talked about this, you know, thousands of years it took to write the Bible, 40 authors. They wrote from palaces and prisons. They were wandering. They were in dungeons. They wrote from joy, despair. I mean, it is a miraculous book. And then if you get in the miracle of preservation and and we go on and on and on, you realize that this is a life-giving manual and it comes outside of human capabilities. The Bible is so simple, a child can understand it. We have two floors right now dedicated to children who are learning God's word, but it is so complex. The greatest minds over the last 4,000 years have mined its truths. So all scripture is divinely inspired, and it's that the man of God, the woman of God, may be thoroughly equipped and complete for every good work. And this is really the theme of the book of Colossians we're studying. That we are complete in Christ, that he is enough. Uh, Bible math is that Jesus plus everything equals nothing, and Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You know, he is our foundation, and he is what we're adding on. He's all we need. That's what we're going to study in Colossians. We don't need philosophy. We don't need psychology. We don't need all these other things added to Jesus. We are complete in him. And last week we went through those glorious verses, 15 through 19, That he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation. That everything was created by him and for him. He's before all things. That in all things he might have the preeminence. 
I shared with you last week as we went through creation that if he can hold the protons and an atom together, if he can hold all of creation together, then he can hold our lives together. It's the beauty of Christianity. You know, we've given life over to him. He's enough. He's in control. He's all we need. And if he can hold this world together with all its craziness, then he can hold my life together. He can hold your life together. Here's the one little caveat he needs the preeminence. He needs to be first. I got saved at 21 years old. I thought that was late. Uh, I'm baptizing kids that are in high school. And for all you high schoolers, I wish I got saved in ninth grade. I wish I could have been on a trajectory earlier. Some of you got saved later. It doesn't matter. But I got saved at 21, which was just enough or at the right time for me to make Christ preeminent in my marriage, in my family in my work decisions, in my choices, my time, my leisure. And 35 years later, putting Christ first has yielded tremendous fruit and tremendous dividends. First, in my sexual experience. First, in how I deal with money, my standard of living. And he's always proved to be true and gracious. The Bible is complete for everything for life and godliness. And the verses we just read said, now it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. In other words, that, that every knee should bow and every tongue would confess Christ. In other words, when Adam sinned, it was a done deal. In the day that you sin, you die. Adam could have died from the dust he came, the dust he would have gone, and that would have been the end of Adam. And God said, no, there's another way. From the foundation of the world, he chose that in Christ we would be reconciled. You reconcile your checkbook, right? You know, you write down what comes in, what goes out. The bank has their ledger. They're never wrong. It's always you. You're wrong. You call them, you get mad, but they're always right, unfortunately. So you had this one way. You were alienated from God. You thought you were going to heaven. Then you looked at the ledger and it said, "Uh uh-uh. And then you were reconciled through the cross. Beautiful. Wonderful. And you're saying, well, Pastor Bob, why is this a difficult verse? Well, did you read verse 21? That we were reconciled and and he's going to make us above reproach, but here comes the problem. If, verse 23, we continue in the faith, steadfast, rooted and grounded, and we don't move away. Here's the difficulty. Most of us in this room believe that grace changes everything. We're here because of grace. We came from religion. We read that glorious verse in Ephesians that by grace we're saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And when God came down and saved us, we, we reveled in that and we gloried in that. We run around shouting from the housetops that, that Jesus was enough. It is finished. And we are saved by his amazing, glorious gift. Now we read here in Colossians that the gift giver wants to take that gift away. That if we're not steadfast, immovable, and always bounding in the love of God, that he may actually take that gift away. Which puts us in a very precarious situation that maybe we could lose our salvation. We have no assurity of heaven. And we're going to spend the rest of our life kind of wondering if we're in the love of God or not. So what do we do with difficult texts? Some Christians just skate over them. It just doesn't bother them. Uh, I guess, you know... Somebody smart enough to figure it out. Here at Calvary Chapel, the beauty of going through the Bible, and we're going to go through all the verses in Colossians, is that we don't skate over these things. We hit them head on. 
Then we don't go searching for them. We just deal with it when we get there. So this morning, I'm going to teach you how to deal with difficult texts. We're going to deal with this one. It'll kind of be like a textbook case for when you hit some others. First verse I want to share with you is from Peter. He's our fisherman buddy, right? Talked about him last week. Fisherman, blue-collar guy, writing about, you know, splitting atoms. Read 2 Peter. Pretty amazing. That's what God can do. But Peter writes this, you know, he said, our beloved brother Paul, and remember, when Paul became a believer, there was a lot of distrust among the apostles because this guy was murdering Christians. He said, our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom God gave him, has wrote to you in his letters. And uh, Peter knew Paul swam in the deep end of the pool, okay? You know, he knew this guy was a cut above. This is the guy that would write Romans. God would use him to write Romans. This this is a man of high intellect, and Peter knew it. Peter's like, look, I'm a fisherman. He's but I read Paul's letters in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught, the unlearned, distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. In other words, the unlearned, they just run with this, and it leads to all kinds of error. So, The Bible, like anything else, has to be taught. Timothy was told to be a workman unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. Philip asked the Ethiopian eunuch when he was reading Isaiah, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless someone teach me? Teaching's one of the gifts in scriptures. It's why we come to church and go to Bible studies. There is a rightly dividing the word of truth. The, the, if we do not, we distort the truth and we get in all kinds of error. We set dates for the return of Christ. We tell people they're lost. And, and we get into this terrible situation of guilt and condemnation. So again, um, hard text, difficult text. What do we do with them? Uh, man was made in the image of God. Therefore, we were given the capacity to create the capacity to think. I already said man has split the atom. He's gone to the moon. We've created an iPhone. Man's pretty incredible, okay? And so God gave us this high intellect. And in some ways, God wants to be sought. Through the word of God and through prayer, we're seeking God. And so I believe difficult texts are in the Bible to drive us to God. Who wants to be spoon-fed? Who in the world would want to open a book of lists. Instead, we get this narrative, we get poem, we get history, and all through it, there's a crimson thread, and it drives us to our knees to experience God. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm. It's about the word of God. Listen to what the psalmist said in verse 18. He said, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in your law. One of the most beautiful things, even as, especially as a young Christian, even as an older Christian, is when you open God's word and there's self-discovery. Where God begins to speak into your life, not just kind of doctrinally, but he takes that doctrine and it meets you where you are. It's a beautiful thing. Believe it or not, I don't think people realize this, but every so often, you know, I go back to certain things and ponder them. For instance, the end times. In a few weeks, we're going to be in Thessalonians. We're going to talk about the rapture. There's a lot of people that don't believe in the rapture. And they think I kind of swallowed this rapture juice. And um, that's why I preach it. And they don't realize I've looked at every view. Backward, forward. Uh, Time and time again, I'll go back one more time. 
Because I want to look at the deep things of God. I want to sift through the gifts of the Spirit, the lifestyle we live. You know, these are things that I want to make sure that I am for myself tracking with God. C.S. Lewis nailed it when he said, God is no fonder of intellectual slackers than any other slackers. If you're thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you, you are embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you, brains and all. Now, outside of the church, people don't think we have brains. They think we check them at the door. C.S. Lewis, one of the most brilliant minds of the last couple centuries, said, no, this is going to be a rigorous intellectual, spiritual endeavor. And by the way, don't ever take for granted what we're doing right now. Do you realize the rank and file American does not do this? They have no mechanism of uh, looking at themselves and dealing with life and examining things. We come together, we sing. People never sing. You know, Freebird, somewhere at some conference, is about all they probably do are in the shower. We come and sing. It's unbelievable. And then we ponder the deep things of God and life and where we came from. We talk about history. People don't do this. I mentioned Peter, a fisherman. Look at his book, his, his sermons and acts. He's pulling all from the Old Testament. I've told you about my brother before, led him to Christ. He had hair down to his belly button. He was dropping acid, dropped out of high school. Gave him a King James Bible a year later. He could read it fluently. God told him, taught him how to read out of the Bible. It's amazing. Moody was a shoe salesman with eighth grade education. And then on the flip side, you have John Lennox, who's been here, who's a mathematician at Oxford, who when he was here, he talked about John chapter one, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he said, it's amazing. We went from an agrarian society to an industrial society to a technological society, and now we're back to an informational society. We're way back to the beginning. In the beginning was the word, and he talked about DNA and information. You could lock me in a room for 100 years reading John 1, and I would never come out with that. See, that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of the Bible. You can mine its depths, read the Psalms and, and what David would discover. And it's just a beautiful thing. So let me give you a few uh, helps when you hit difficult texts. Number one, always ask, what is the context? By the way, when we talk about difficult texts, we're talking about a series of verses that seemingly say the same thing that contradicts some other things we see or believe about God. We're not talking about the Mormons who say the Book of Mormon is an extra book of the Bible, find a few verses. Or we're not talking about purgatory, which is between heaven and hell, and let's go find a few verses. We're talking about a multiplicity of verses, okay? So what is the context? Again, similar verses. Let me give you some similar verses to Colossians. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6 says, it is impossible, that's a strong word, for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were partakers of the Holy Spirit, if they fall away, didn't say they fall away, it says if, to renew them again the repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, and put him to open shame. Pretty strong verse. Uh, this is out of Galatians chapter 5. Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, 
and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised, he's a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You have attempted to be justified the law. Here's a tricky verse. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Pretty strong. Now here may be the strongest verse from Jesus. Very troubling. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we've prophesied in your name, we've cast out demons in your name, we've done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus said the way of destruction was broad, and he said people that would say this would be many. Now, it's a travesty that anyone would go to hell. It's a travesty that someone who believed in dark arts or many gods would go, excuse me, would ever go to hell. But to me, the greatest travesty is to be casting demons out in his name, to be involved in the work of God, and to hear this phrase, I never knew you. So these verses seem pretty convincing, don't they? Pretty consistent. But again, what's their context is what we have to ask. Well, the context of the Galatians and the Hebrews, Paul said, was they have believed another gospel. Who has bewitched you is the idea. There were Judaizers telling people they had to become Jews, then Christians. Jesus, that comes from the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. Jesus was speaking to religious Jews. And by the way, we love Israel. We love the concept of Israel. But I want to tell you, we don't love Judaism. Judaism is as lost and religious as any other form of religion. So these were very religious people. This might help you. Look, look up at verse 15 in Colossians, chapter 1. Speaking of Jesus, it says he's the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God made the Jews the custodian of his law, of his word, and who, of who he was. The problem is they had no name for God, they couldn't pronounce it, and they had no representation. Every other religion had a picture, a statue, uh, a name for gods or their God. The Jews had nothing. And yet they exported God to the whole world. Thomas Cahill in his book, um, The Gift of the Jews, said how a tribe of desert nomads change the way everyone thinks and feels. How'd they do that? They did it through the word of God. They were called people of the book. Uh, do a contrast of Rome and Jerusalem sometimes. I've been to Jerusalem five times. When you go to Jerusalem, you'll never find frescoes or art, and if you do, it's all Greek and Roman. Because of the second command that they were not to make an image of God, uh, the Jews were really not into art. They didn't give the world art. And so you don't see that in Jerusalem. Go to Rome and it'll knock your socks off. Statues the size of the ceiling. Frescoes, the Sistine Chapel. There is imagery everywhere. God's prohibition of the second commandment not to make anything that would represent him was twofold. 
Number one, there is no image that will give you the full representation of God. Now, in our church, there's almost no icons. And people will say from time to time, why don't we have a cross? Well, you know, we could have a cross if we wanted, I guess. When Paul said that, that he gloried in nothing of the cross, he was glorying in the exchange, not the execution stake. When I was in Egypt, all you would see is mosques. And uh, one day we went to this place called the Cave Church, which is Orthodox, and there was a big cross, and it was like, oh man, this is great, just to see anything. But you know, there's some Jews that see crosses and think they killed Christ, or they've been called Christ-haters. So you've got to be careful with images. There's a lot of people that aren't Christians today because they think Jesus is white or European or something of that nature. The second reason why God didn't want images, because in Deuteronomy chapter 4, he said you would be prone to bow down to them. Anybody think they have the propensity to do that? Now, that's all weird people, right? Weird people around the world, they bow down to images. Uh, I've seen a few statues on lawns in my day. The serpent on the pole in the book of Numbers was venerated in the Old Testament. Uh, for all of those of you who don't think you would ever do this, uh, do you ever sit in a football stadium with someone's jersey on that their last name is on your back and not yours? That's really weird. <laughs> really weird. Pay $150 for a jersey to put somebody else's name on it? So marketers figured out there's something in our nature. They study this type of stuff. Every, every color, everything you see in an ad has been studied to the nth degree. We're prone to identify. That's why we wear polo and Gucci. That's why you put names on the back of your shirt. It's why you get autographs. We were created to worship and we bow down to an image. We all do it. We're all prone to it. Paul was combating two things in his day. Legalism, which was adding something to Christ, and something that we gotta be careful in our day Easy believism. Now, I'm still tracking with this image idea. Easy believism is I'm a good person. I go to church. I always believed in God. I hang around people that believe in God. I read the Bible. I got baptized at Sizzling Summer. I must be a Christian. I can't tell anyone who comes out of a Sizzling Summer pool that they're a Christian. I just can't do it. I don't know if they were caught up in the moment. I don't know if they're doing it for a thousand wrong reasons. But see, all those ideas, if they don't line up with the word of God, we, is making God in our image. See, the word imagination comes from image. When I was in college, before I became a Christian, someone asked me if I believed in God, and I said, yeah, but here's what I believe. I, I believe we get reincarnated over and over again, and when we finally live a good life, then we go to heaven. And there was a girl in the back seat who said, that sounds awesome. I'm going to adopt that. <laughs> now, looking back, that was ridiculous, right? First of all, where is any proof of reincarnation? How, how do you prove that? Then where's the proof of a good life gets you to heaven? And that just came out of my imagination, that's me making God in my image. So when someone says all these things, it's another image, it's another icon, another idol. Verse 21, you have to look at this, says you, 
that's you, a believer, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, he has reconciled. That's not the drug addict, the alcoholic, and the murderer. That's every single believer. You were alienated in your mind. An alien means you were not in the family. Well, Pastor Bob, I always believed in God. Yeah, well, the Bible says the demons believe and tremble. Satan believes in God. We talked last week about nature declares the glory of God. You haven't taken a big leap by believing in the man upstairs. I don't care if you got saved at six years old. There has to be a sense in your spirit that you were reconciled, that you were an alien and not a child from God and then moved into that condition. Anything outside of that is easy believism. There has to be repentance. There has to be confession of sin, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, an unction for change. So what's the context of the verse? Second thing you need to know, and you might struggle with this, is almost every major Bible doctrine is paradoxical in some nature. What that means is because it comes out of the mind of God and not out of the mind of man, two things can be true, and we've got to live in the tension. I'll give you an example. If I asked you who lives your Christian life, you could say, it's Christ in me, the hope of glory. And then somebody over here could say, no, I buffet my body as a soldier. Two very valid verses saying seemingly two different things. James says faith without works is dead. Jesus said, um, you're coming into the kingdom because you fed people and gave them drink and you visited them in prison. In other words, faith works. Now, every hard text has texts that say the other, paradoxical, the security of the believer. Jesus said in John 6, 37, all the Father gives me shall come to me, and he who comes to me I'll not know why cast out. 5, 24 says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who has ears, um, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life, no condition. John 10, 27 says, all the Father has given me, no one is able to snatch out of my hand. And then what I call the believer's treasure, what shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing. No sword, no pearl, nothing of this world, famine, should ever separate me from the love of God. And Philippians 1, that we looked at last week, said, or a few weeks ago, um, that what I have committed, he's keeping for the final day. So, hard text. Now, the greatest error we can make is to look at paradoxical doctrines and not live in the tension. So people that can't live in this tension become Calvinists. Um, God knew who would get saved. He knew who wouldn't. Or let's take it one, you know, hyper-Calvinists would say, no, God actually chose those who would be saved and chose those who would be damned. Uh, therefore, there is security if you were the elect. Go the other way and become an Arminianist, and it's all up to us, and God just lays it out there. And of course, that error is people are in churches and they never know if they're saved. To believe either extreme, you've got to cut a lot of verses out of your Bible, and we don't have time to get into all that. 
Um, but the Bible is paradoxical in many of its major doctrines. Third thing I like to do is read what others think. Great scholars. Uh, they've done the work in the Greek and the Hebrew and all, and that's a great thing to do. And then here's what seals the deal for me. I pray it through. I realize this could take a lifetime to unpack. But I've got to unpack it. Uh, one day, God solved this for me, and it was over. I put it to bed. And how he solved it for me is, uh, I was reading the parable of the sower. And i got to be honest. Do you ever read a portion of scripture you've read a million times and you're prone just to skip over it? So, you know, the sower is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I was in Luke, and I was just going to skip over it. And I read it one more time, and the parable's easy, you know, a sower goes out to sow, some goes on hard soil, rocky soil, weeds, and then good ground, and only the good ground produces 30, 60, and 100 fold. And then Jesus even interprets it. He said, the seed is the word of God, the sower is the son of man, and the soils are the hearers or the human heart. So you get the picture, right? Um, there was seed that went on the hard soil, and boom, it, the birds of the air came and took it away. Seed went into soil with thorns, and it produced for a while, but then, you know, the weeds overtook it. And then some went into rocky soil, produced for a while when the cares of the world came. Uh, that ended that. And then the good ground produced 30, 60, and 100-fold. Uh, when I read the parable in Luke, something jumped out at me that I had never seen before, where Jesus said, those by the wayside, the hard soil, are those who hear, but the devil comes and takes the word out of their hearts. Listen, only Luke writes this, lest they believe and should be saved. And it was like, wow, I get it. Three-fourths of the people who ever had the gospel preached to them may look like believers. This is a parable of salvation. Jesus said, if you can't understand this parable, you can't understand any of the parables. And the light went on. And I, and I got it. This, that, that the true repentant heart produces 30, 60, and 100 fold. When Jesus said, many will come in my name and say, I never knew you, that was the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The very next verse, he said, a man builds a house, one on a sand, one on a firm foundation, and only storms, tribulations, and trials will ever let you know how that foundation was built. You can't see it. They look the same with the naked eye. Trials, tribulations, and storms will tell us if we trusted Christ, or listen, if our trust lied elsewhere. Corey Ten Boom hid Jews during World War II. She and her family put in a concentration camp, watched her entire family die. Went on to become a great evangelist. She wrote a book called Tramp for the Lord. Trial, tribulation, and storm showed her foundation was on the rock. I could tell you a hundred stories. I could tell you stories from my own life. You could probably tell me stories. When the storms come, we find out that we make God in our image do we have some icon that he was supposed to be the great slot machine in the sky, the great fixer of all things, or was our foundation in Christ? See, personally, here's what I know. I know I'm a fallen man. I know in my humanness I make mistakes. 
But I also know that I'm like David, that when I sin against God, there's a rottenness in my bones. I know there's people on bar stools today that there's rottenness in their bones. They're real Christians. It's killing them, the way they're living. I'm a great sinner who has a great Savior. I know there's an outworking on my salvation. I know that I just, I know God picks me up and I keep going. I know like the prodigal son, he can bring others home. See, here's the question. Was there ever real salvation in the beginning? I can say for me there was. Not because of an experience, but because the outworking that I see in my life. The spirit that convicts me. I read you that verse in Romans 8 where it says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall famine or sword or persecution or nakedness? It says, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And here's what Paul's persuaded of. I am persuaded that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall ever separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The clear teaching of Scripture is that when I gave my life to Christ, I was inseparably linked to him. And no one's ever going to take that away. I could commit suicide and I'm still going to heaven. And I'm not going to heaven because of easy believism. Okay, I'm saved by grace. God, if I'm saved by grace, then then, then I can go out and live the way I want. No, grace is teaching us to live godly in this present age. It says here he's going to present you above reproach. That's my desire. If I I could have my way, God, I want to be above reproach. I don't want to live half in the world, half in the church. When Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. Remember that? Practice? You know, Alan Iverson? Before Christ, that's what we did. We got up every day and we practiced lawlessness. Practice. I don't practice lawlessness today. I'm trying to practice godliness. There's deep regret and sorrow and dryness when I don't. And Paul ends this, and I want to make sure we hit this verse. The gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven. Every creature under heaven. Belief before this time was localized. The Romans had their gods, the Greeks had their gods, the Jews had their gods. Jesus said this would go into all the earth. From every nation under heaven. Every creature under would hear. Pastor Bob, what about those who never heard? Don't worry about those who never heard. You heard. God is the judge of all the earth. He'll do right. And God, again, creation, speaking of his glory, telling them there's a creator. God will judge on the light that they've seen. Every creature under heaven. Here we are in America. We think we're the center of the earth. By the way, if you ever look at a map, Every country that looks at a map, they're always big and they're always at the center. We are not the center of the earth. That's our worldview. That's where that word comes from. We didn't exist when this was written. And we've heard. See, we think of it the other way. Well, what about the pygmy and that? No, the fact that you heard is amazing. We're the last of the Mohicans here. 
God will do his work. He's really good at it. Keep yourself in the love of God. It means to walk with him, to abide. Just abide in the vine and watch him work through you. Difficult texts draw us to our knees, to a God that wants to be sought. He wants us to knock and to seek. He doesn't want us to open a Bible and look at five points to have a healthy marriage. He wants to walk and talk with you, and he wants you to discover, and he wants you to go through mountains and valleys and streams and forge a relationship with him so that one day you become like Job and say, you know, I heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now I've seen you for myself. That's what it means to know God.